C-O-O-M, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome, everyone, to a special episode of the COO Roundtable podcast. Today is our third year anniversary. We have produced one episode a month since December of 2018. And I know 36 episodes doesn't sound very impressive. I always laugh when Michael Kitsis welcomes listeners to episode 4,952 of the Advisor Success Podcast. Michael is an absolute animal, and I am not. But we are very proud of our number 36. So let me just take a quick second here and thank all of you for tuning in each month for the positive feedback we've received. Just last week, someone reached out randomly and emailed me and said, I just wanted to drop you a line and say that the podcast is really awesome. Your guests and you do a great job personifying the director of operations. Please keep up the great work. And this was just the latest note that I've received. You all have been so positive and encouraging over these past couple of years. I can't thank you all enough. Moving forward, if there's any interview candidates you'd like us to interview or any particular topic areas you want us to bring up during our conversations, please let me know. You can email me at msonnen at pfiadvisors.com. And my email address is also on my bio on our website. So you can find it there as well. So just shoot me a note. So for this anniversary episode, we wanted to do something a little different. As you all know, when we launched the podcast, it was very important to me that we speak with operations folks that were in these roles. I wanted to hear from people that were in the trenches and we called it a round table because I thought it would be fun to interview multiple guests on each episode. But for this anniversary episode, I'm breaking both of my rules. <laughs> this is our, our first and maybe it'll be our last, I don't know, but it's our first episode with only one single guest. And our solo guest today does not hold an operations position at an RIA. But as we've discussed on previous episodes, once in a while, I think it's really helpful to take a step back and talk about the role of operations in our industry, rather than talking to people who are performing the tasks on a daily basis. So without further ado, let me introduce Carl Heckenberg. Carl is the CEO and president of Emigrant Partners. He's a friend of mine, and he has a very unique perspective on the industry, as Emigrant is investing in RIAs, and Carl does deep due diligence on the efficiency and ultimately the profitability of these firms before making an investment. So I think we have a really great conversation lined up for today. So Carl, that was a long introduction. I apologize, but welcome to the COO Roundtable. Thanks, Matt. It's, uh, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> So I think most of our listeners are very familiar with Emigrant Partners. You guys are in the press all the time. I saw another headline today even. So why don't you give us a background of the firm in your own words? Yeah, sure. Fiduciary Network, which is part of Immigrant Partners, was started in 2006 by my predecessor, Mark Hurley, and Immigrant Bank. And the idea really was pretty simple, to provide minority capital in a non-voting fashion, provide advice and capital, and really help firms maintain their independence. I think at the time, the capital options for founder liquidity were either they took a note, did an internal deal, or you sold to a bank. And, you know, around the same time, obviously, your previous firm, Focus, launched, Fiduciary Network launched, and, and you know, they were kind of pioneers in the space in the sense that they gave a new capital option to growing firms that really wanted to remain independent. So, you know, the firm has been around for over 15 years. I've been in charge of it for actually, it'll be three years next week. And currently, we're invested in 19 firms as of the end of this week that have 
close to 90 billion in assets cumulatively. So the average is about four and a half billion. They range in size from about a billion three up to say 21 billion. All different business models, multifamily office, mass affluent, high net worth. But the biggest thing is we're minority. We're not on the board. We do provide, I think, equally important to us advice. I would say the upside that I always tell sellers and the next gen team is the good news is you don't have to take it, but we'll certainly <laughs> give it. And I think we believe, and certainly I believe strongly that RIAs are, I think, generally better off as an independent firm, gives them a lot more options. And we've certainly seen that play out in the last few years. So our listeners know that I love to stalk people on LinkedIn before they come on the podcast. And I have to give you a hard time because your LinkedIn bio sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you do not provide any history at all. It yeah. only lists what you're currently doing. Yeah. But, but yeah. I know that you've been at Schwab. I know you were at Wells Fargo. I know you were at Merrill Lynch. And when you and I met, you were at Lions Capital Partners. So yeah. there is a history there, whether you, want, <laughs> whether you want to share it on LinkedIn or not. But uh, can you walk our, our listeners through your career path and what led you to joining Fiduciary network, which then became Emigrant Partners? Yeah, no, I was I was a finance major in college. I, I think my dad gave me the choice of economics or finance. Um, so it was a pretty, pretty broad spectrum. And honestly, I got lucky. Uh, a friend of his uh, worked at Merrill Lynch. Uh, when I graduated, I got a job and, you know, it was nice because back then firms actually had training programs. I wasn't on the advisor side. I was actually on the credit side. So I got to do rotations through leverage finance, residential, commercial, different areas, capital markets, and ended up somehow convincing myself I, I did want to become a financial advisor. So while I was finishing up that program, which took a couple of years to get my Series 7, I ended up joining an advisor at firm, you probably remember, A.G. Edwards & Sons, which was headquartered in St. Louis, and actually ended up in, after building a nice book, ended up in management and uh, spent actually 13 years there with ultimately, I think, Wachovia owned them for all of you know, five minutes and then Wells Fargo ended up buying Wachovia. And then after that, I ended up at Schwab, which was a great experience. It was really kind of my introduction to the independent wealth management space. Obviously, Schwab is, you know, mostly known for their retail and our circles. Obviously, they're known as certainly the largest RIA custodian, but uh, that was fairly new to me. And then I ended up with a family office in Kentucky, which owned Hilliard Lions. And that's actually how I met Howard somewhat serendipitously, that family office was shown the investment opportunity that was being marketed at the time by Silverlane for a business that was then known as HPM Partners. And uh, now it's known as Serity, which obviously it's a, a fantastic organization run by a good friend, Kurt Masensky. And so I actually got to know Howard and his partner, Barry Freeberg at Immigrant Bank. And the timing just ended up working out nicely with what was going on with Fiduciary Network. I got to know Howard over a long period of time. He owned a, another business and still does New York Private Trust, which does private label business for RIAs, banks, broker dealers, and whatnot. And so I started working for the family in the fall of 2017. That's almost been, uh, I guess, four years in January. See, it's a, it's a fantastic history. You shouldn't be ashamed of it, Carl. I'm going to yeah. hack into your LinkedIn and update it for you. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, honestly, I really only got into LinkedIn. It's interesting. I would say once I really kind of got into this job and as, you know, all things with the Milsteins, you end up taking on about five different roles. So as you probably noticed, I, I'm on like four different trust company boards and yep. 
I've got a role with the bank and, and the role here. So I figured as opposed to uh, people constantly having to hit the show more button at the bottom of LinkedIn on experience, I would uh, try and keep it short and sweet. Yeah, that's good. I don't, I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> So as I said at the top of the episode, this is an operations focused podcast, but you are the quote M&A guy. So we're going to jump back and forth from M&A yeah. to operations topics as we talk here. Yeah. But I think one great place to start, I think, is to simply ask you when you're evaluating a firm for a possible investment, what is the biggest sign in your mind that that firm needs operations help? You know, it's interesting when you start the diligence process because, I mean, as, as you know from certainly your, your work now, but your work at Focus, the tempo is typically the firm will provide some financials. That actually gives you a pretty good glimpse into how organized the firm is. So looking at the quality information, the quality of data, and the financials, how they're organized, how they think about things. You get through that, you get through the LOI, and then you open up the data room and you put in your document request list. It's interesting because one, you always get an immediate bird's eye view into who gets delegated on the other side with populating the data room. And it's it's usually one person, yeah. which is fascinating. And the documents range in a variety of areas, investment, operations, compliance, certainly financial, marketing, different areas. So you really do get a glimpse at A, how efficiently they kind of move through that, how organized they are in collecting these documents. We set up interviews and so on, but I would say finance and operations are probably the two areas that we really try and spend the most time on, mainly because I've, we've generally found most firms have spent the least amount of time on those two areas. Marketing, the investment platform, compliance, just because it's it's a bit of, you know, obviously a, a gating issue to doing business. They spend a lot more time in finance and, and operations is an area that I think immediately distinguishes a firm into, is this scalable? And look, when I say, is it scalable? I don't mean just for M&A purposes. I mean, is it really scalable? You know, I mean, obviously this is an operations focused podcast, but if you don't have that part of the business pulled together and same with the finance side, I'd say you might be able to hit 2 billion, but you're probably not going much past that. So, yep. you know, it, it, it the diligence process really is eye-opening. And I think a lot of firms, you know, that obviously we invest in have done a great job focusing on that. Uh, another thing that we really focus on is the cap table and making sure that the equity owners are not just the folks that are client-facing. That's important to us as well. You know, you, you really get to know a firm in diligence, good, bad, or indifferent. Where we make the investments, we like to think the good part, but there are always areas that, you know, you do identify identify coming out of it, even when you still make the investment that you want to spend time with the firm, making sure that they understand they probably need to reinvest in some of those areas. Yeah, exactly. So we've spoken a lot on this podcast over the past three years about the evolution of an advisor's value proposition to their clients. And I think you and I have actually talked about this on, on a couple different occasions. When I joined the wealth management space in 1997, the story that advisors were telling their clients and prospects was, I have a proprietary model that spits out 26 stocks and those 26 stocks have performed really well in up and down markets and you should hire me because I'm going to make you rich. But with the introduction of low cost ETFs and robo advisors, the asset management side of the business has been commoditized. So we've had to work harder to show our value to clients and we've had to add services to our wealth management offering in order to keep our fees from getting compressed. So if fees are staying the same, but we're adding services, which in turn means we have to add more people to the RIAs, I assume, and you're the perfect person to ask this to, I assume margins must be coming down then. 
Is that right, Carl? You know, it's been interesting. Margins have not been coming down, but for one reason, equity markets have been going up faster than <laughs> expenses have been going up. Uh, you know, if when we model out an investment, we actually assume that fixed expenses actually accelerate some because typically, uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I never know what scale means to people. I, having seen 50 and $100 billion organizations and, and certainly larger, by default, you could take someone like LPL, their margins are actually probably half of what most RA margins are. Right. Um, so the idea that you're going to get bigger and therefore your, your margins are going to widen, I think, is, is a falsehood. We spend most of the time assuming that the equity markets and the fixed income markets don't cooperate as much as they have. And your expense base, as you were kind of alluding to, is going to have to grow at the same pace, regardless of how the equity markets grow. So I think a lot of sins have gotten covered up in the last few years. I think people haven't focused a lot on compressing margins because revenue... You know, and this is a great year as an example. You know, the S&P is up, what, 20 some odd percent. I was looking at our firms, you know, recently through Q3, average revenue growth was 16% for the year, which is remarkable. Yeah. But I can tell you that, you know, if, if you took the market away for the vast majority of RIAs, they will see margin compression. They just haven't seen it because we've got this, the Federal Reserve has been <laughs> overly accommodative and we've gotten in this issue where, you know, if, it, if it's an asset, it's growing. So I do see margins coming down. I think one of the things that we focus on when we talk to firms is, look, $10 billion to a lot of RAs seems like that's big and, and they'll use the term scale. I've worked at firms that have trillions of dollars. And I, I would say their margins aren't any better. The things that they can do far exceed. I think the opportunity for RAs is really focusing on what the larger kind of at scale, the Vanguard, the Fidelity, the Schwab providers don't want to focus on or can't afford to focus on. But I think client experience to me is something that, look, it's, it's a gating issue. I think, you know, you and I've talked about baby boomers are fine logging into Orion or Tamarack and yep. seeing a static view of their assets. That's what they're used to seeing at Merrill Lynch or UBS or so on. So they don't mind going in and seeing the static pie chart and seeing weekly or nightly updates. I think if you're in Gen X, let alone millennial, that just doesn't cut it. And I think the backbone of the RA industry right now is still built on baby boomers. And that's not always going to be the case. It's going to be that case for a while, but we see massive underinvestment in client experience. And that includes operations, onboarding. I'm always amazed. We still meet a ton of firms that haven't implemented DocuSign. I mean, it's just all these things that you and I both know. I can go on to Betterment or a Titan or someone online asset management firm, open up an account, take a photo of my ID, connect it via Plaid to my bank account, open funded due to KYC in like four to five minutes yep. and be investing. And I just don't think that RIAs have really spent enough time in this area because they haven't had to. I always use my mom as the typical kind of boomer client. You know, she's 75. She doesn't want to open an account that way. I'm 47. For me, honestly, it would be a gating issue to having a relationship with a wealth manager if they didn't have a mobile app that was good, if I couldn't do a lot of things. So, I mean, again, to bring it back to your area of expertise and, and a number of our firms have obviously used you guys with great success. I I think, you know, we are reminding them this is you need to make hay while the sun's out. And that yeah. means you need to start reinvesting back into your infrastructure, not just maximizing your distribution policy because the markets are up.
Yep. Um, and I think, you know, that's where you're seeing a lot of firms opt to just hit the register and sell. I, I do think, you know, we talk to a lot of people who end up selling to acquirers and these aggregators. And I think a lot of it is there is a deep recognition that the market is changing, their clients are changing, interactions with clients' kids are changing. And I think they see a lot more headwinds. And and I think the firms that are excited about it, and I would use a firm that, you know, you know, out West Parallel, great example, they're running headlong into it. Younger advisor base, younger ownership, very broad distribution, phenomenal on, on the Salesforce side, great on the operation side, good client experience. Like they're running headlong into it and embracing it. I think a lot of other firms that we're seeing who are just opting to sell to an aggregator are acknowledging that they don't want to do the work. They don't want to reinvest. And, you know, recognizing the fact that reinvestment is not what they want to do. And we have this market environment that is incredibly compelling to sell. I think that's exactly right. Yep. Very well said. Peter Thiel's got this famous question that he asked people. He says, what do you believe that very few people agree with you on? And we founded PFI Advisors on the unpopular belief that at some point in the future, RIA owners at scale will begin to run their firms like true businesses and not just sales organizations. And of course, there are pockets of RIAs out there that have institutionalized their firms, but the vast majority of them, even north of 1 billion of AUM, the vast majority of RIAs are simply two or three or maybe four advisors really just running in different directions. They're telling different stories about their firms. So you using different marketing materials, et cetera. But we believe, PFI Advisors believes that over time, as more and more private equity keeps piling into this industry, RAs are gonna be forced to start running their firms as true businesses. And it, I, I started the firm on that belief, but I will say I do lay awake at night, sometimes wondering when is this day actually going to come? So I want, since I have you today, I want to ask you, Carl, what are your thoughts on this? Where is our industry today with respect to RIAs being run as true businesses? And do you think there is a trend going in that direction? Yeah, you know, I, I would say to your point, what what do I believe that most other people don't? I would agree with you. I would believe the vast majority, and it's often irrespective of size, are not run as true businesses, you know, and they're really, I would say, large lifestyle practices, even, even in the multi-billion dollar category, sometimes even up to 10 or 15. I think people are surprised by that. But I think if you spent any time investing in, and I've had you know the good fortune to invest in businesses outside of wealth and asset to really see how those businesses are organized, their focus on how they're growing, their metrics, their KPIs, how they're building out their staffing how they're thinking about competitive threats. They're really run to maximize shareholder value and creation through the equity. RAs don't. I think most even large, you know, and we see a lot of them, five, $10 billion RAs are really, they've been around for 20 or 30 years. They've gotten some good, great tailwinds, really. They've invested, I would say, the bare minimum of what they've needed to. Technology has helped them build out the business. I, I think, you know, we we need less people to do some of the things that we used to. But we've had this incredibly cooperative equity market for, you know, 20 plus years and equally on the fixed income side. So, I mean, I think private equity, it's always interesting talking to sponsors and, and partners at these firms because I think they still have a huge fundamental misunderstanding of what these businesses are and are not. 
in their human capital businesses. It's fascinating to me because the only reason they will invest in an RIA over, say, a law firm, which nobody invests in law firms, <laughs> is, you know, they say, well, you know, it's AUM fees, it's changing client demographics, it's, it's wealth transfer, it's all these things. And honestly, I would argue that's kind of BS. Typically, wealth managers are not capturing wealth that transitions from one generation to another, no matter what they say. It almost never happens. I'm not sure if it was you or someone else years ago that told me, have you ever met anybody that uses their father's CPA? <laughs> and the answer is no. And so that I think is knocked out. I think most boomers, because they're living longer, will probably outlive their own wealth. So I think that gets distributed back into the economy. And I don't think private equities really kind of figured that out. I think that they think that you buy out a founder and his top three people and you buy the assets, quote unquote. And I use that loosely because there are no assets. It's you're buying a book of relationships and somehow you've locked that in and think that we spend a lot of time in diligence really understanding if how many advisors are servicing a relationship, are they multi-generational? If one gets hit by, you know, a pie truck tomorrow, would the client leave? And we do client diligence calls as part of that. Private equity doesn't dig that in. I think they're working from a hypothesis that it's this generational wealth transfer. It's I've even heard a few of them refer to it as it's a lot like software, you know, high margins, high client retention, great businesses. And I would argue they're nothing alike other than they're high margin and they probably shouldn't be as high margin as they are. So that that's a really long answer, but I find the investment thesis is that most people make into these businesses. And I, I will tell you, it's why I couldn't imagine being in a role where I was running a consolidator. I, I just can't because honestly, I don't think I would sleep well knowing that I'm probably buying essentially books of business from people that have built it. Now they're on a beach and you know the clients are getting older and they're dying and God forbid the equity market don't go up at 20% a year. Most of these businesses, you and I know, are melting ice cubes. It's just that you can't see it because we're getting this incredibly favorable environment. But I think once that environment shifts, and I don't know when it'll happen, it could be 10 years, could be 20 years, it could be two, it could be never. My job to invest money is to assume that the worst does happen. I have a credit background, so I'm naturally biased to believe the worst could happen. So that's, again, the incredibly long answer to what I believe that I think most other people don't believe. Yep. But it's interesting because not to get off on a further tangent, I think the role of private equity and what private equity does now has so dramatically changed in the last 20 years that the game has changed so differently in how private equity firms make money relative to the way they used to make money. I think that once you understand that, it's it's kind of like taking the red pill versus the blue pill in the matrix. <laughs> and, and you understand what these guys are really trying to accomplish. And it isn't returns, it's capital out the door on ever-increasing funds, I think you become very cynical. And I think that, like I said, the average age of the founder that I've invested in over the last three years is like 51. You know, that is materially lower than anybody else in the space, which typically is mid to high 60s. And again, we're always minority because we want them to have more skin in the game. But yeah, no, it's going to be interesting to see how how the market environment kind of shapes, you know, what happens over the next few years. But, you know, we're seeing multiples that are unprecedented by any industry, not just our own. Yeah, I mean, you were joking saying, well, Jesus is a really long answer, but it was, it's an extremely important question. So I appreciate you yeah. going through all of that. So to tie it in now to this, to our operations podcast. So as firms are looking to institutionalize their business, we hope 
<laughs> we hope that means that more COOs and operations professionals will be brought into these firms, which is a big driver, obviously, behind this podcast. It's why we've recently created the COO Society as kind of a training ground for these folks that we're, we're hoping our industry is going to have this big demand for this role now. You've got a really interesting take on how RIA owners go about looking for a COO and how they define the role. The term COO, the, those three letters can mean different things to different people. Many people, many RIA owners shy away from the COO title altogether because they think, well, geez, if I, if I call him chief something, that's going to be a really expensive hire. So I'll call him anything but the COO. Talk to us about some of the conversations you've had with RIA owners around the role of the COO. Yeah, you know, you and I were talking recently and I said, you know, it's it's interesting to me because there's so much nuance between chief operating officer and chief operations officer. And it's interesting because from the hires perspective, they generally don't, I would say not generally don't care, but generally they don't distinguish. They hear COO and, and I think they make assumptions based on what they want the role to be, what they think the role should be. So as part of our diligence, we always do individual interviews with key management advisors and, and so on. And, you know, we always kind of ask, you know, look, if you could do whatever you want in the organization, what would you do? And then we ask, how do you see other people in the organization? And succession plan and so on. The founders, it, very interestingly, I would say most of the management team is on the same page. The founders almost never on the same page. And I would say they're more prone to say, you know, oh, it's a chief operations officer. And probably out of our firms, half have what I would call a, a COO, like an operating officer, kind of what I would consider, you know, a, a number two, you know, to use the no previous analogy, you get hit by a pie truck who takes over in, in terms of succession. I have one myself. We're a regulated bank. So I actually have to submit mine in writing every year. And mine is my COO, Alex Postavoy, who you know. But I, I, I think it's important when you kind of drill down on that with different people, because I, I think really understanding is this role really about managing the operations team? Technology always gets chucked in there, those areas. Or is it about really managing the organization more from an administrative and operations side, but that ties into HR. It certainly could tie into finance. And I think, you know, we we spent a lot of time kind of picking those apart because I think RIA owners do sometimes love to use titles in lieu of actual money. And so you get my least favorite title in the industry, I think, as I've shared with you, is managing partner. If you've ever worked with a law firm, you know what a managing partner is, which I always say is the person whose job it is to manage the feral cats and doesn't get paid for it. And RIAs, you know, sometimes you'll bump into a managing partner, but he's not an equity owner and he really has no authority. So I think RIAs, going back to your point that I think RIAs, you know, really need to start operating like a business. I think they, you know, I'd love to see more hire executive coaches, spend more time in, in you know, business groups and in networking groups and serving on the boards of other companies, uh, because I think it gives you a much better insight into how companies are actually organized. But I think around the, the operation side, I mean, again, I think obviously not to sound like I'm pandering to your audience, it really is a differentiator to firms that really want to grow and, and having the right person in that seat. And it's a hard role, as you know, to fill. Um, you know, you've sent us a number of people that a few of them we've gotten our firms to hire, a few we've looked at hiring ourselves, a few I've sent to someone and said, look, I know you don't have the rec now, but when a person like this comes on the market, like you need to hire them because there aren't a lot of people in our industry that have experience 
managing large RIAs because the phenomenon of large RIAs is less than 10 years old. So I think we're all kind of learning on the job. Conversely, I would say we've seen a few people brought in from outside industries that have failed. <laughs> and, you know, that, that's kind of an interesting conversation as well, because most people don't go into the financial advice business because they want to manage other people. They go into it because they really don't want to be managed. Yep. I mean, it's it's outside of our industry. It really is. There's books written about it. There's Harvard Business Review articles written about it. The COO is second in command. Yeah. But in our industry, and it's the whole reason why we started this podcast, our industry, it's, well, any advisor, uh, the hunter advisor is is chief. <laughs> yeah. Any service advisor, while they're not going out and getting the clients, but they're servicing the clients and they're keeping their clients and they're hoping, hopefully, if they're servicing them well, they're, they're getting us referrals they're ahead of the COO at many, many firms, the client service associates that are just, you know, doing the ordering the checks and, and journaling the money and sending out the wires. They're ahead of the COO because, Hey, they're client facing. You're right. just the crazy operations person in the, in the dungeon. <laughs> right. that, you know, the joke I always make, I, I stole you from the geek squad at Best Buy. Cause you're the guy or girl that comes and plugs right. in my, my router, my, you know, yeah. so that we have Wi-Fi in the office. So it, it's, it's just, it's frustrating to me. And that's why, you know, we're going to keep with three years in, we're, we're going to keep plugging away because the whole we're trying to, we'll never get to second in command, but we're trying to at least elevate the COO role higher in our industry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really good point, but I, I think it even goes beyond the COO in, in the sense that, you know, when we go back to talking about running businesses like businesses, I, I would say the vast majority of RIA founders have major control issues. Yeah. I, I mean, major. And, and, you know, I think that it, things are organized that way. Everybody's in their own little pod and it, it's kind of like terrorist cells you know and a lot of RAAs it's funny when you ask them for minutes from board meetings they don't have them because they don't convene as a group I think you and I both know the way most RAAs are run it's one person the founder the CEO running from office to office yeah. managing individual egos and then collectively massaging things into uh, an outcome and I, I mean, again, that's got to change in the industry because I think we're now seeing, and it's funny because you've seen a couple of people notably take massive valuations. I mean, close to billion dollar, if not billion dollar valuations for businesses recently and talking to a few of them, you know, kind of post-transaction, it's kind of this, oh shit moment. Like I suddenly realize I now need to build a $4 billion organization. Right. And, you know, they're used to making all the decisions down to approving individual expense reports. You can't run a $4 billion business <laughs> and still do that. And it's going to be letting go of control, letting other people come in and make decisions, giving them the authority to make those decisions, being comfortable with them. And I think that's the, you know, we're still in the awkward teenage years in this industry. I, I think the verdict is largely still out. And we're really not going to know. I mean, most of the really notable RIAs that have been established in the last, you know, maybe they were established in the 80s, but most of these guys are just getting liquidity now. And it's funny because when you look at the consolidators and some of these really big four, five, seven billion dollar RAs that are trading in the last, honestly, two years. It's kind of like, I think we're going to find out in the next five years what these firms look like, because a lot of these guys are on the beach now. And it wasn't the case before. You had a lot of guys who said they were kind of retiring, but they were still chairman emeritus. They were kind of kicking around. At these valuations, we've seen a lot of really big firms where suddenly guys are on the beach, like they've just left. We've never experienced that. And it'll be interesting to see, because another thing that 
that we spend a lot of time on is the personality of the people that the founders hire to run the organization is usually 180 degrees from the founder. And so is once you take that founder out of the equation, you give them liquidity, they don't really have a, a huge incentive. What does that organization look like? And, you know, I would tell you, we really don't know. You know, there were a few early examples where people gave a ton of liquidity to people. And I would use wealth trust as an example that didn't really work out well. I mean, that's why I think we're absolutely committed to being minority investors, but we, we still don't know what it's going to look like. And there's that generational thing that comes up in, in wealth a lot, which is it's the first one who kind of pioneers the idea. It's the second one who grows it and the third one who blows it. It's hard to tell if we're in the second or the third phase yet, Yeah. but hopefully we're in the second phase. I think that's the thesis that most of us have, which is we're going to build on these foundations and build these decabillion dollar businesses in, in terms of AUM. But, you know, I don't know, we, we could find out in five to seven years we're actually in the blow it phase. Um, but, you know, we're all going to get to find out together. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that leads me to another a very common topic that we discuss on the podcast, and that's how do COOs define and prove their worth at the RAs they're working at? We've, we've, you and I have defined the problem <laughs> in that last conversation. So now what, what, can, what can COOs do? It's not always easy for all the reasons that we've discussed, but one area, obviously near and dear to your heart, one area that I think it's very easy to prove their value is in the M&A arena. If an RIA is trying to attract, and you even said this a little bit earlier, if an RIA is trying to attract advisors to their firm, I've made the argument on this podcast many, many times that it is it will be impossible to make a successful presentation to an advisor that you're trying to woo to your organization without having a competent COO in place. And as we've discussed, you're you're deeply entrenched in the M&A game in our industry. So what are your thoughts around that, that advisor pitch uh, that RIAs are making when they're trying to convince other advisors to join their firm? And what do you think the role of the COO is in that pitch? Yeah, I, you know, it, it is such a crowded field that I absolutely agree that if a COO is not part of the first conversation, and they should be, I think it shows the advisor, this person is really dedicated to ensuring the transition, because the economics are going to probably shake out to be the economics, then the question that really determines who goes where is what is the transition going to be like? Are my clients going to get the attention and service that they need? Is the transition going to go well? Am I going to lose clients? Do I have a good chance of the earnout? And a lot of RIAs get into those conversations, they talk about how they all have wonderful synergies and they're going to work together. And then when the advisor asks that kind of gating issue of, hey, you know, how is this going to work in terms of the transition and the, the buying firm says, well, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out or, you know, it, it just, uh, we've seen that literally knock firms out of contention. And we tell people, look, we kind of do an M&A prep with them and say, look, you know, what do your marketing materials look like? What does your pitch look like? Try and remember when you get into these conversations that you are selling them on your firm it's not the other way around. And I think we always encourage them to have, if they have a COO, that person should be there. If not, someone that will actually be handling the transition. And if they don't really even have that resource, and, and you know, I mean, again, not, not to pitch your firm, but, you know, we've had PFI act in that function where we've gone into pitches, you know, with our firm as the buyer saying, hey, at least we've got PFI teed up to make sure that this this does. And, and we've used you guys before through, through our firms very successfully. I think you have to address it out of the gate because what I'll tell you is Mercer, WEG, 
Cap Trust, you know, Creative Planning, all these guys, Mariner, they're all going to talk about the transition because frankly, they do it well, yeah. you know, and, and it's a gating issue. And I think most small RAs, because they don't get in the reps as much, they don't think about it as much. They spend a lot of time talking about the culture and the investment platform and, you know, the economics and all those things. But, you know, everybody's talking about those things. You know, what, what ultimately, in my mind, gets an advisor over the hump is, you know, the transition. Um, and I, I think if you don't include that person in, or to your point, you drag them out of the dungeon, you know, and, and, you know, the bottom of the ninth and say, oh, by the way, you know, this guy who you've never met before on the Zoom is going to be working with you and your team on the transition. It just, it doesn't give you a fighting chance to, to be able to do M&A. I was, I think it was last weekend, I was going back and forth with uh, Mike Thrasher from RIA Intel uh, on Twitter, we were going back and forth and I was saying, you, I can't believe how bad many of the buyers are at, at kind of oh. articulating their value proposition. And poor Mike was saying, I don't understand what you're talking about. Our, our buyers are fantastic. And I didn't want to, you know, it, yeah. it's a public forum and everything, but I'm thinking to myself, Mike, you're in the press. You have survivorship, or what is it? Survivor's bias, right? You're only reporting on the successful ones. You have well, no idea how many unsuccessful <laughs> buyers are out there trying to court advisors to their firms, and they're horrible at it. <laughs> well, I mean, to that point, look, when, when we sit down with any of our firms or any prospects that we're meeting with, it's an area that we really try and get firms to make a decision on, which is, I always say, look, you, you don't have to do M&A. Generally, I talk more people out of doing M&A than actually doing it. And it's for the exact reason. Unless you're prepared to put the resources into it, the time, the money, the energy, and the reps, I mean, look, I, I do it every day. You know, we may talk to 100 people to get a couple of deals that we feel comfortable with and, and they want to transact with us. I mean, you have to get in. A lot of people just don't have that inside of them. Like they don't like getting told no that often. They get really excited about a deal and then it goes the other way. And I, I think your your point about survivorship bias is absolutely right. You know, when you're just hearing about Wagner, Hightower, or Mercer, or, you know, Mariner or so on, yes, they're great at it. But, you know, that's why they're winning 90% of the deals out there. You know, what's amazing is for, for every seller that gets into a process, you know, they may see 12 offers and, and you know, half of those will be from aggregators, half will not. The, those deals are much harder. We just went through it, you know, today it was announced with Pure Financial in San Diego and they acquired a fantastic firm up in Mercer Island. It was their first for them, but, you know, it was a great effort. Jason Carver, who used to work with, is, yep. is there and he helped get them ready. We worked with them on the financing. The guys at Lee Equity worked with them. I mean, it was, you know, it was all hands on deck. I think it's going to be a fantastic addition, but it's a lot of work. I think most people are just not geared up for it. And as I always remind them when we're sitting down, everybody thinks their firm is great. You know, the question is, if you're in a bake-off with, you know, those firms that I just mentioned, what really differentiates you? And and don't say investment platform, you know, <laughs> right, right. So, or, or that you use, you know, Orion. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to have to be a lot more than that. Well, Carl, thank you so much. This has been a, a fun one. Uh, I was a little worried with only one guest where we going to fill 40 <laughs> minutes, but this we've, we've gone on and on. This has been great. So thank you for being here and being our only to this date solo interviewee after three years. <laughs> Can I get a plaque? Yeah, I, I, I will get, I will get you one. <laughs> or at least a deal toy or something. Right. <laughs> well, Thanks no, a lot, I Carl.
Thanks, man. Well, all of you, thank you for a fun three years. It's it's a Monday. Uh, we're recording this, so I don't know if I'm going to pop champagne tonight, but Reese and I are going to split a nice bottle of wine to celebrate the, the three-year anniversary of the podcast. So we'll talk to everybody soon. Thanks a lot.